This audio recording is the first session of Restoration Road's 2016 Men's Retreat at Cedar Springs Camp in Lake Stevens, Washington. The title of the session is The Battle is Real and Personal. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. We're going to pray uh, for one another, uh, and we're going to pray for the one, which is to be humbled so that the Lord will build us up and not to be embarrassed or ashamed so that we despair or torn down. Uh, I'm going to pray uh, out of 1 Peter to that end, and then we'll get into it. It's out of 1 Peter 5, um, and I'm just going to pray this prayer as I pray God's Word back to Himself. Peter says this, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Mm-hmm. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Mm-hmm. Father, we pray that that will happen. That you, Father, will humble us. Help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand. Being aware that there is an enemy prowling right now that wants to destroy, that wants to take the suffering perhaps that you want us to experience, the pain that you want us to face, the darkness that you want us to reveal, and he wants to exploit that. But Father, that's not what you want to do. You want to humble us, you want to care for us, and then you want to build us up and restore us. So I pray for that, Lord. I pray for that for myself. I pray for that for these men, that you will blow our minds with what you teach us about yourself this week. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so the subtitle of this camp uh, is Fight for Purity. In an impure world, and that doesn't mean, although you might be thinking that, that it's merely a retreat about the evils of pornography and the dangers of masturbation. <laughs> yes, I said the word masturbation. We have to be a church culture where we can talk about real stuff. And men who can have real conversations. Um, we have a tendency, uh, relationally, with each other and a lot of people to be superficial. And we don't have the time to do that. And so we need to be honest with one another and be real. And so we're going to talk about real stuff, and you're going to hear some real stories um, that might shock you a little bit, but it's important for us to to have a culture in our church where we don't let sin and darkness reign and we let light and glory uh, overcome that. So that's what we're going to do. Um, This camp is really about the greatest threat assaulting biblical manhood today and relationships today. Um, there is not a gift that God has blessed us with that has not been corrupted by sin in this world. Not a one. And sin has taken uh, good things and made them oftentimes bad for us, but it's also taken good things and made them just too important to us. Um, overindulgence in food, abuse of drink, captivation by beauty, devotion to work, idolization of our family, exploitation of nature, right? All these things are evidence enough to say things are messed up. And any good thing and all good things 
God has given us. But this is, I think, no more true and no more dangerous than with our sexuality. And the Bible teaches that, that um, you know, sin is sin. At the same time, it also kind of explains or, or hints and even directly states that not all sin is equal. And what I mean by that, uh, even though a lawbreaker is a lawbreaker, right? There's one lawgiver, and whether you, whether you murder or whether you lie, you're still a lawbreaker. That is true. The destructive impact of sexual morality is unrivaled. It's unrivaled today. Men and women are under assault uh, from the worship of sexuality as God in our culture like no other time. Apologist uh, Peter Kreeft uh, had an interesting statement. He said, sex is the effective religion of our culture. And today, it's interesting, um, God, it seems, and I'm speaking culturally, has very little to say in sex, but it, it feels like sex and sexuality has a say in directing nearly every part of our world. It has something to do with morality, it has something to do socially, medically, Politically, economically, and spiritually. It's, it's in every conversation. Uh, sexuality is one of, as I said, God's greatest gifts. But because of sin, it has become one of the enemy's greatest weapons. And it's assaulting individuals and marriages and families and careers. And with the pervasiveness of news and social media today, um, we see it. All the time. You just see the dangers of it. You see um, the pervasiveness of it. And perhaps it's always been there. Perhaps our culture today just makes it uh, look like there's more of it. But there's something really powerful about sexuality today. And in the Bible, Paul warns about sexual morality more than anything else. Whenever he has a list of sin, he always starts with that. And it's interesting, uh, when he's speaking in 1 Corinthians, he speaks, um, he says several things about sexuality, but at one point, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, every other sin, every other sin in a person, a, a person commits is outside the body. But a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have from God? You are not your own that you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He basically says, like, look, it's not like every other sin. It's, it's, there's another level of brokenness, another level of suffering, another level of destruction. And let's not forget something. That was written a couple thousand years ago, right, to the early church. And you go... I guess this problem's not really new. It's very old. The battle actually began even older, way back. And as we've gone through Genesis in, uh, in service, we've seen that um, a lot of things, well, everything that went poorly began in the garden. Genesis chapter 3. And it's really important to understand what happened in the garden. It records... Uh, where our first parents listened to the lies of the enemy, the words of the enemy, rather than trusting in the words of God. They, they went after the promises of sin rather than trusting the promises of God. And 
if you listen carefully and you think of it in the context of sexuality a little bit, this is what it says, and you've heard this passage before, I'm sure. But Genesis 3, 7 says, after they had eaten, right? They both have eaten. It says, the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, Well, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. In the most scandalous of ways, sin, as we see in Genesis 3, promises this greater satisfaction. It has these power, like, if sin wasn't powerful and, and big in the promises it made, it would never be a problem for us. But it has these grand promises. It looks good, and for a time it feels good, but it actually produces, according to Genesis 3, two things in particular. Guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. Even if for a while you don't feel that. Guilt over what I have done or not done. And shame over what I have. But at its core, you know what sin is. At its core, I, you need to understand what sin is because this helps to understand as we think of all creation. We think of whatever it is, food, drink, work, marriage, all these gifts that God gave us, and sexuality is one of those. You have to understand what sin is. Sin is ultimately separation from God. Yeah. And what begins with separation from God, right, the, the ultimate result of sin, bleeds itself out into every gift he has given us being separated from and separating the creator from his creation is, creates chaos. It creates chaos. It creates perversion. It creates death. And that goes with every aspect of creation. It doesn't matter what it is. If you separate work from the creator's purpose and design, it will go poorly. It will become a God that you look for for satisfaction, for hope, for meetings, for security, when that God is taken away, you'll be in the hell that you most fear. Because that was your Savior, and the Savior let you down. What happens when we begin to worship creation rather than the Creator is that you confuse the goodness of His creation for the goodness of God. And in terms of sexuality, it's the goodness of sex for the goodness of God Himself. And then you begin to call what is actually evil godly. And that's what you have going on in our world. They have made a God out of something that was never intended to be one. Now, this idea of separation, if you just look at culture and you see what's happened to sexuality over history, it just slowly is separated from the way God designed it to be. Let me give you some examples. You probably have heard the sexual revolution of the 21st century, uh, or the 20th century, I'm sorry. And um, what happened in the, in the 20th century was different than other centuries in this sense. And I think John Piper said it best, and it's bled over to the 21st century, obviously. 
It's not that sexual brokenness wasn't always around and, and impurity in that way wasn't always around. It's that when you got to the 20th century and then the 21st century, what was always around and always broken became institutionalized. It became authorized by culture, became pursued by culture, approved by culture, promoted by culture in a formal and official kind of way. And so what you have seen slowly over time, sex be separated from all the places that God designed it to be. Separated from marriage in the form of what? Adultery, fornication, whatever. Separated from children, right? Birth control. Not that sex only is for that, but when you have birth control, sex takes on a whole new kind of perspective, if you will, at least in the eyes of the world. Sex was separated from relationship, right? I don't have to be uh, married. I can just have a prostitute. Sex became separated from gender now, right? It's not just homosexuality, but others. Sex became separated from humans. Yes, that happens today. And sex became eventually separated from another person. What I mean by that is that you have lust, then you have self-sex, and you have pornography that doesn't even have to be real. I just read an article the other day um, about the uh, advancements in um, sex dolls and how real they're now making them. And if you are familiar, not that you should watch it, with a new HBO show called Westworld, or I think it's called Westworld. That's a remake of an old one. It's about that as well. With that old virtual reality, but even beyond that, where you don't even need another person anymore. That's the world that we're living in. In other words, when Adam took that bite, the world was plunged into darkness. And we've all seen the football, you know, John 3.16. Well, if you read the rest of 3.16, or John 3, you get another picture of what's going on. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 3. And then you'll also, we're going to be in 1 John as well. We know 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He says, God didn't send his son into the world, condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 3.17, awesome. 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. This is why they're condemned. Light came into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This idea of darkness, hiding in the darkness, the world loves the darkness. They don't want to come out of the darkness because of the shame and the guilt they feel and they know they don't dare expose that to anybody. And in our culture today, I'm a child of the 80s. And in the 80s, pornography was really hard to get a hold of. In the 80s, 
I had a 7-Eleven behind my, my house. You'd go up. I never purchased pornography. I was a comic book geek, right? But whenever I buy my comic book, behind the counter with a brown bag covering it was what I knew was pornography. Different world. First pornographic magazine I happened upon was on a trail that I walked to school. You know what the scary thing about it is? I can access that image like that. And I was in fourth grade. I can remember it. It's powerful. That's what Paul talked about. Like, it is powerful. But in the 80s, it was hard to come by. You had to really risk a lot to get it and to find it. As an adult, I don't know, but I imagine it was difficult. As a kid, it was impossible. But today, this child of the 80s, right? The late 80s, those born in the late 80s, this is the first generation with internet access, right? Internet access came out in the late 80s. Windows 3.1 was like 93, I think, right? We're living in a generation for the first time that everyone who's born, right, has, has access to the internet. And the information age has changed everything. The access and the accessibility to everything is right here. Instantly, secretly, privately, no one would know. Unrestrained lust, unrestrained indulgence is literally at the click of a button. The click of a button, and we all know it. And the thing about it is that we minimize its danger. We minimize the effect on us. We minimize its power. Smartphones, tablets, laptops, they have become today's pimps and virtual prostitutes, accessible anytime, anywhere in the darkness. If you look at uh, page, I think it's page, it's either, I think it's 19, it's like appendix three in the very back of your booklet. There's some really basic statistics that I think you should just be aware of. That verse uh, at the very beginning says, Proverbs 27, 20, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied and never satisfied are the eyes of a man. Do you know today there are more hardcore porn uh, stores in the United States than McDonald's restaurants? From 2001 to 2007, you want to know when the first uh, iPhone came out? 2007. Internet porn went from 1 billion year industry to 3 billion year industry, and now it's significantly higher than that. Those who call themselves Christians know that 50% of all Christian men and 20% of all Christian women report their addicted pornography. The other half hides. Not to suggest that everyone's addicted. But those who identify themselves as fundamental Christians are 91% more likely to look at porn and the most common day to look at it is Sundays. Those who are single know that 68% of young adult men and 18% of women use porn at least once every week. Those who are married know that 56% of divorce cases involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. And I'll tell you that most couples I sit down with, most, not all, most couples I sit down with in counseling, pornography 
has somehow created conflict in the marriage. And it made the only problem. And I've, I've been a pastor for 10 years. Didn't expect that. Didn't know that. It's one of the top three questions I ask now when we first start counseling. What are you going to do? What I counsel, I'll let you know. Um, <laughs> 75% of wives discovered evidence of compulsive behavior, and 70% of wives of self-identified addicts met most criteria for PTSD. Did you read that part? 70% of wives of self-identified, so the husband who said, I'm addicted to this, the wife met criteria in how she felt and her behavior for PTSD. That's the power of it. Well, those who are parents know the average age of the first internet exposure is 11 through any of the 4.2 million pornographic websites on the internet. 55.4% of teens reported they have visited sexually explicit sites. 81% viewed these at home, and 67 stated they clear their history always or regularly to hide their activity. Kids are not dumb, <laughs> right? I have uh, a new thing now. With, if you're interested to learn about, it's called the circle. It's the best thing I've found so far to filter to help. For everyone else, know that in the last two minutes it took to read this page, over $369,000 has been spent on pornography and almost 3.4 million people have viewed pornography and nearly 45,000 people have searched for adult terms. And none of these statistics include whatever is exchanged through social media. And my whole point in doing that is just to give you a picture of the darkness that we live in. To give you a picture of the assault that we're under. That to say that as, as a, a, a church, a group of men, that if this isn't a serious issue that we're battling against, we're foolish. We're foolish. The description that darkness I gave is probably where most of us live, statistically. In some place of the spectrum. And the sheer volume of exposure is overwhelming. I was talking to my sons just about the difference in culture that we grew up in. And the assault that is just so different than their, than my world that I grew up in. And the interesting thing is the more we compromise, and I mean compromise because um, I think a lot of us, maybe not all of us, but a lot of us have smartphones. Probably most of us. And um, I can say without a hesitation, I've never looked at a pornographic site on this phone. And on any phone I've had, actually, it's smart. But I've looked at pictures and stuff, and not even on purpose. Did you know the Pokemon app that came out, right? Those kids going out, I was excited, like, hey, all right, my you know, kid that never did anything is walking around the city now and killing stuff, like, woo, all excited, right? Did you know that as soon as that app came out, which was incredibly popular, another app came out that modeled it, looked very similar to it, and it was simply a fishing hook for porn. So you'd go and you'd search for Pokemon and you'd download that app, it looks just like it, but it was actually directing porn. So kids. The more men compromise in the smallest of ways, whether it's just this Google image that I happen to look at versus a pornographic site, whatever, the more they start to consume. 
And the more we start to consume, guess what? The more we get away from God and we hide. And we get filled with guilt and we get with shame and we go, there's no way I'm coming out from behind this bush. No way. Because we start, as Adam did, to be scared. We're scared of what will happen if I come out behind that bush. That's what he said to God, right? I heard you walking and I was scared that you were going to see me naked, right? Now, Grant, God had made him naked. It wasn't nakedness in the sense of he knew he was going to. You're going to see me exposed for who I am, God. We fear so much. There are guys in here that fear so much what people will think of them. If you knew what I've looked at, if you knew what I've done, if you knew where I've been, we fear God hates us. Man, God just must hate my guts. I'm such a faker or whatever. We fear what those we love, what they think, what they'll do. We fear we're the only ones. No one's struggled like me. No way. And we fear that there's no way out of the darkness. So I'm going to read you a really brief story to give you the spirit of where we're going to go tonight and hopefully tomorrow a little bit. Um, try, to, try to listen. I know it's hard to listen to a story, but try to listen because I think this is really powerful. It says, There once was a noble and great king whose land was terrorized by a crafty dragon. Like a massive bird of prey, the scaly beast delighted in ravaging villages with its fiery breath. Hapless victims ran from their burning homes only to be snatched into the dragon's jaws or talons. And those devoured instantly were deemed more fortunate than those carried back to the dragon's lair to be devoured at his leisure. The king led his sons and knights in many valiant battles against the dragon. And riding alone in the forest, one of the king's sons heard his name purred low and soft. In the shadows of the ferns and trees curled among the boulders lay the dragon. And the creature's heavy-lidded eyes fastened on the prince, and the reptilian mouth stretched into a friendly smile. Oh, don't be alarmed, said the dragon, as gray wisps of smoke rose lazy from his nostrils. I'm not what your father thinks. Well, what are you then, asked the prince, wearily drawing his sword as he pulled in the reins to keep his fearful horse from bolting. Oh, I'm pleasure, said the dragon. Ride on my back and you'll experience more than you ever imagined. Come now, I have no harmful intentions. I seek a friend, someone to share flights with me. Have you never dreamed of flying? Never longed to soar in the clouds? I punched the hole in the words. I don't know what to say. So, so, uh, uh, <clears throat> oh, thinking of soaring high above the forest of hills drew the prince instantly from his horse. The dragon unfurled one great webbed wing to serve as the ramp to his ridged back, and between the spiny projections, the prince found a secure seat. And then the creature snapped its powerful wings twice and launched them into the sky, and the prince's apprehension melted into awe and exhilaration. And from then on, he met the dragon often, but secretly. For how could he tell his father, brothers, or knights that he had befriended the enemy? The prince felt separate from their all. Their concerns were no longer his concerns. Even though he wasn't with the dragon, he spent less time with those he loved and more time alone. 
The skin on the prince's legs became calloused from gripping the ridged back of the dragon, and his hands grew rough and hardened, and he began wearing gloves to hide the malady. And after many nights of riding, he discovered scales growing on the backs of his hands as well. And with dread, he realized his fate were he, were he to continue, so he resolved to return no more to the dragon. But after a fortnight, he again sought the dragon, having been tormented with desire. And so it transpired many times over, no matter what his determination, the prince eventually found himself pulled back as if by the cords of an invisible web. Silently, patiently, the dragon always waited. One cold, moonless night, their excursion became a foray against a sleeping village. Torching the thatched roofs with fiery blasts from his nostrils, the dragon roared with delight when the terrified victims fled from their burning homes. Swooping in, the serpent squelched again, and flames engulfed a cluster of screaming villages, and the prince closed his eyes tightly in an attempt to shut out the carnage. In the pre-dawn hours, when the prince kept, crept back from his dragon trysts, the road outside his father's castle usually remained empty, but not tonight. Terrified refugees streamed into protective walls of the castle, and the prince attempted to slip through the crowd to close himself in his chambers, but some of the survivors stared and pointed towards him. He was there! The woman cried out. I saw him on the back of the dragon. Others nodded their heads in angry agreement, and horrified, the prince saw that his father, the king, was in the courtyard holding a bleeding child in his arms. The king's face mirrored the agony of his people as his eyes found the princes, and the son fled, hoping to escape into the night, but the guards apprehended him as if he were a common thief. And they brought him to the great hall where his father sat solemnly on the throne, and the people on every side railed against the prince. Banish him! He heard one of his own brothers angrily cry out, Burn him alive! Other voices shouted. As the king rose from his throne, blood stains from the wounded shone darkly on his royal robes. The crowd felt silent in expectation of his decree. The prince, who would not bear to look into his father's face, stared at the flagstones of the floor. Take off your gloves and tunic, the king commanded. The prince obeyed slowly, dreading to have his metamorphosis uncovered before the kingdom. Was his shame not already enough? He had hoped for a quick death without further humiliation. Sounds of revulsion rippled through the crowd at the sight of the prince's thick, scaled skin and ridge growing along his spine. The king strode toward his son, and the prince steeled himself, fully expecting a, black, a backhanded blow, even though he had never been struck so by his father. And instead, his father embraced him and wept as he held him tightly. In shocked disbelief, the prince buried his face against his father's shoulder. Do you want, do you wish to be freed from the dragon, my son? The prince answered in despair, I wished it many times, but there's no hope for me. Well, not alone, said the king. You cannot win against the dragon alone. Mm -hmm. Father, I'm no longer your son. I am half beast, sobbed the prince. But his father replied, my blood runs in your veins. My nobility has always been stamped deep within your soul. With his face still hidden tearfully in his father's embrace, the prince heard the king instruct the crowd. The dragon is crafty. Some fall victims to his wiles and some to his violence, and there will be mercy for all who wish to be freed. Who else among you has ridden the dragon? 
The prince lifted his head to see someone emerge from the crowd. To his amazement, he recognized an older brother, one who had been lauded throughout the kingdom for his onslaughts against the dragon in battle and for his many good deeds. Others came, some weeping, others hanging their heads in shame. The king embraced them all. This is our most powerful weapon against the dragon, he announced. Truth. No more hidden flights. Alone, we cannot resist him. It's a pretty powerful little story. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of truth in it. Before my good friend shares a story, I want to end with 1 John. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to just read a few verses out of there. There is an answer to the darkness. And it's not just an answer for us, it's an answer for anyone. It's an answer for us to help those who are struggling, who are are in the darkness, hiding in shame and guilt. We have to not just be equipped for ourselves, but we have to be equipped for those in our care. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, if you beginning verse 5, read it carefully, it says this, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. There's a separation from God. We lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Do you notice the comment about the guy riding the dragon? He said that he stopped spending time with those he loved. And he started spending a lot of time alone. Isolation is one of the biggest and easiest ways to hide. The blood of Jesus, he says, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let me just close it up. The title of this talk is The Battle is Real, The Battle is Personal. First, the battle is real. And what I mean by that is you've got to stop kidding yourself. Every one of us has to get our heads out of the sand a little bit. But we can say that about many issues, but this one in particular is the one we're going to focus on. You and those you love in this world. Meaning, you or someone you know is being assaulted right now by a world and an enemy that wants to kill and destroy. You live in a war zone whether you realize it or not, and you are likely battling right now and possibly losing if you don't realize that truth. The battle is real. People are really getting hurt. Relationships are really being killed. It's a battle that cannot be ignored. It cannot be minimized. It cannot be managed Away. It is a supernatural battle that plays itself out in the natural reality of our lives. 
And men, we must learn and lead the fight. And we must learn first to protect ourselves, and then we must learn and fight to protect others. The battle is not purely material. And what I mean is there's a battle of the, of the spirit going on, voices that come not just from the enemy, but from within, from the flesh. And the voices tell us it's no big deal. It's not going to hurt me. My kids are fine. I don't need fences. I don't need filters. I can handle it. I've sat with marriages that said they could handle it, and they are now divorced. We men must fight not only for the purity in ourselves, but for the purity in our homes, and the purity in our communities, and the purity of the world. But secondly, the battle is personal. What I mean is you can kind of separate yourself a little bit from it. That battle going on, I've heard about that. We do that with things like abortion all the time. And we do the same with purity. By personal, I mean it actually involves real people, not just statistics. When you think about it, and I'm not going to for a second think that there is a man here who has not looked at a naked picture that is not your wife. I'm going to assume that every single person here has looked at a naked picture of a woman that's not your wife. I want you to think about something. She is someone's potential mom, sister, daughter, or wife. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, as you indulge in that or others indulge in this, there are other people's wives and people's children being destroyed relationally. And what I mean by that is perhaps you right now are, are that man that's experienced freedom and maybe that's not just been the major battle in your life and God be praised then. But what about your friend? Do you dare ask him a question about pornography? Do you have a man who'll ask you that question? And more importantly, will you tell the truth? That's the kind of culture we got to have in our church because there are lives that are falling apart. There's people's wives and people's children being destroyed. There are teenagers and old men, Christians and pastors who are failing. And so I'm either talking to you today or I'm talking to you tomorrow about this, right? Many believe that the darkness won't affect them. And I love a quote, I think I put it in your book, that said this, if you think you can't fall into sexual sin, then you're godlier than David, stronger than Samson, and wiser than Solomon. Wow. It's arguable that there is only one man who never fell into sexual sin. His name was Jesus. That's not because he was never tempted. Those who we consider great men, businessmen, statesmen, pastors have all fallen, and those who we consider ordinary men have fallen as well. It's a a battle that attacks everybody. But what I love about this, particularly the passage that I read, and the story I told. What was the greatest fear of the prince? 
What was the greatest fear? Rejection. Rejection from his dad, right? But how does his dad react? If you keep reading in John into chapter 2, pay very particular attention to those verses. It says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. There's your permission to confess or bring to the light what you <coughs> are so scared of. The guilt you feel, the shame you feel, and the promise that you're only going to have in grace. The promise that you're only going to have forgiveness. The promise that Jesus is only going to love you. And I'll give you a little you know, hint. Jesus already knows. <laughs> Just as the Father in the story already knew. Jesus doesn't condemn he advocates to the Father by the Spirit for those who confess their sin and walk in the light. And Jesus stands ready to forgive and heal those who come into the light. But like the prince, there must be someone, and many someones, brave enough to be first. And so I've asked Eric, most of you guys know, to share his story and where he's at in terms of this experience. So 